Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you in the house of the Lord this morning. All right, now, getting ready to commune with our Lord, our head. We are the body, and we come united in him, with him, to come and celebrate um, his work on our behalf, what he has done for us. So let us prepare now our hearts and our minds by worshiping him in spirit and in truth and preparing to commune with him this morning. Thank you. If you will, please remain standing if you are able, and let's turn to God's Word together for these few short verses here in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Galatians, the epistle written by Paul to the churches in Galatia, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, as we continue to study this letter of Paul. The Word of the Lord says this, And when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Thank you. You may be seated. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you now asking as we hear your word that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears that your Holy Spirit would anoint the lips of this preacher, that all of us here, O Lord, may be taught your word. We may see Jesus Christ. We may hear Jesus Christ. We may be transformed by the living vine. We may be renewed by the rock that gushes water. Renew us, O Lord, and transform us into your image. The very preaching of your word today, in Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. Should we seek a church without conflict? Is it good for us to expect that there be no conflict? How about in your personal life? How do you respond to conflict? Are you one who shies away from conflict? Do you avoid it at all costs? How do you respond to conflict? Think about it, and let's see what God's Word has for us today. Let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians Again, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Here is a very, very important passage in this epistle. And it is kind of in the midst of Paul having a defense of his apostleship and also speaking to the truth of the gospel. And we've been talking about the gospel over and over. And Paul is defending the one true gospel and speaking 
that those who should not be included in the church or that should be cast away are those that preach and teach another gospel, not that there is one, but if there were, he says, then they should be anathema. And so now he goes into this very somewhat controversial passage. If we look at this at the surface level, we may say, well, first of all, who is Paul that he may oppose Peter? Isn't Peter the rock? We just read that. Last week, we talked about that. And I asked you earlier how we should deal with conflict. And sometimes how we deal with it in our own church, it's okay. There's, the choir is just departing loudly. Don't, don't let that fear, don't let that door slamming cause you to be fearful. Um, how do we deal with conflict? Because here Paul rightly says, I opposed him, Peter, to his face. Some of us avoid conflict, don't we? I remember um, coming back from Afghanistan and having a nice layover in Romania and having a week there with my Marines, and we actually were allowed to go to the bar uh, with one drink limit, but we went to the bar, um, and then over time it became two drinks or three drinks, whatever. And I remember sitting there one night with my Marines and one of the pilots who was a Latter-day Saint became so uh, uh, inebriated, if you will, intoxicated that he just wanted to fight. So, of course, I happened to be the easiest target. So he started a discussion with me about why I believed what I believed and how I could believe such things and, and how I could put all of my faith into some document written by man. And at that time, I so wanted to have a healthy discussion as to why I believed what I believed. And I, I believe I also could have had a very good defense, much like Paul does here in Galatians. But because I knew the context and I knew the situation and this guy was a helo pilot that was three times my size, I also just simply withdrew from the conversation, knowing that there would be no conversation. It would be one-sided. It would not be helpful. And in that sense, I walked away from conflict. I didn't know how it would end. I do know how it did end. It ended with me in my bunk doing some reading. It was very peaceful, uh, so it wasn't bad on my end. Um, how do we deal with conflict? Sometimes we run from conflict. Sometimes we say that, you know what, it's just not worth getting into a, dis a discussion. And I could justify my reasons for leaving, but that's not the point. The point here is to simply show you that sometimes it is good for us to walk away. But on the flip side, Paul is teaching us and showing us sometimes you have to take action. You must do something. You must oppose bad theology, bad teaching, bad practice. So I first want to start by saying I use the word conflict because I think so often we think of any challenge as potential conflict. We think of any uh, admonition as a possible conflict. 
rather healthy admonition is how God works in his church. Healthy admonishment is how God uses us to refine the body of Christ individually, corporately. This is exactly what happens in these few verses. Paul isn't challenging Peter by saying, put up your dukes. He's not coming at him with a weapon. But he does oppose him. And I believe he does so rightly. So I want to draw our attention from this idea of conflict to more of of admonishment. This is the word that we use, the biblical term. You see, conflict really is uh, something that's causing uh, causing strife or causing two worldviews to come together and somewhere in the middle there's an explosion. And then you kind of let the pieces fall where they fall. But admonition is a little different. It's a firm warning. It's drawing attention to something that just isn't right. And if it's done appropriately, as God has ordained and established, it could be very successful. It could be very helpful. And so this morning, I want us to think not in terms of conflict or even challenges, although that's the word I'm going to use here, more of a biblical term of admonishing a firm warning against false teachings. We just read in 1 John this idea of the Antichrists going out from the disciples, spreading uh, false gospels, pointing to things other than Christ. Well, sometimes it's okay to admonish the Antichrists or to admonish one another so that we don't become Antichrists. Paul here opposes Peter. Let's look at this text for just a moment. Let me show you four main principles. Because I think healthy challenges, healthy admonition can be good for the body of Christ. Could be good for you, could be good for me, and good for this body as a whole. Paul opposes Peter in verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face. See, the first thing I want you to see is a challenge can be appropriate. We need to understand that a challenge or an admonition can be appropriate in the church. In other words, we shouldn't say that anybody who raises a concern is just a troublemaker. That somebody who raises a concern or a challenge to me should automatically cause me to get defensive. As a matter of fact, as a Christian, we should expect our brothers and sisters to admonish us. We should expect our pastor to admonish us. I should expect the elders to admonish me. It should be a part of our theology, our practice, how we think and how we act. Paul goes on to explain what he opposed Peter, why he opposed Peter, how he opposed Peter, and... Because God has ordained it in this text, it's absolutely appropriate for Paul to address Peter and to challenge him, to admonish him for what he was doing. So let's look at why this challenge is appropriate. Verse 11, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. 
Paul somehow had the discernment to know what Peter was saying and doing weren't lining up. And they weren't lining up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was a problem for Paul. Paul witnessed Peter act contrary to the gospel. Paul wasn't going off what he heard. He wasn't going off of hearsay. Somehow, Paul, in his visit to Jerusalem, had witnessed Peter act this way. He saw what he was doing. Verse 12, for before a certain man came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So we'll get into the accusation here in just a moment. But what Paul is starting with here is, should I even go to Peter and oppose him? Should I go and challenge Peter for what he's doing, for what I have seen and I know that he is doing? What's interesting here is going back to Acts chapter 10. If you go back to Acts chapter 10, do you know what Acts 10 is about? Let's go over to Acts chapter 10. Because I'm sure you, like me, have forgotten and you must be reminded. Some of you are smarter than me, so probably not. But go back to Acts chapter 10. And there's this whole Peter and Cornelius experience. Do you remember what happens here? Peter has this vision. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 13, but Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision had uh, that he had seen might mean, behold, the men came who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And in this, this interaction with the men of Cornelius' household to go and to speak to Cornelius. And you know where this is going, right? Verse 23. Invited them to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. He goes to the house of Cornelius. And verse 28 is key here. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. See, here's Peter basically saying, I have been corrected by God in my theology through this vision. I no longer believe that they're unclean if God calls them clean. If God chooses to clean an individual, to redeem an individual, it doesn't matter their nationality. And Peter has had his theology changed. He has been taught that the gospel is for all whom God calls, not just the Jew. And so Peter understands this when he goes to the house of Cornelius. And here's what I find interesting. We'll talk about this in just a second. Go to verse 34. Peter then, after this, shares the, go the gospel, the good news, with the household, right? 
And he says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Peter got it. Peter understood that the gospel of Jesus Christ was for the Gentile also. He, he knew it. Yet go back to Galatians, and here is, here is Paul having to address this with Peter and oppose him for having different actions, for not acting in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter understood the gospel, yet he acted contrary to that. And Paul then says that must be addressed. And so in this case, Paul's challenge was very appropriate. It was also appropriate because he followed Matthew 18 and went to his face, not speaking behind his back to other people about this Peter, who is a hypocrite. But no, going straight to Peter and opposing him one on one. And we know that Matthew 18, Jesus teaches this, doesn't he? You remember Matthew 18? Go over to Matthew 18. Let's remind ourselves of Matthew 18 this morning. We throw this out, I do anyway, quite often. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, oppose him to his face. Oppose her to his fa her face. Go to them one-on-one. -on -one. Why? It's always better to get it, take care of it at the lowest level. So that you don't have to worry about smearing somebody's name. Or causing others to now have bad thoughts or feelings or be anxious about that person with what has gone on between the two of you. But Paul here challenges Peter following this biblical mandate of Matthew 18, going to his face and opposing him, not behind his back. And it's all because his theology did not line up with his practice. Now, I know that a lot of you are going to go, well, theology is not something I have. Theology is something that you have and the elders have and the teachers have. No, 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 no. We all have a theology. It's basically how you think about God. So your theology is going to be informed by the gospel, by what you, have, what you know of God's word, and then that is going to be the determining factor, if you will, on how, or it should be, the determining factor on how you act. And so if you know that Matthew 18 tells us that we are to go to those who have sinned against us one-to-one, -one, then doing something opposite, obviously, we are not acting with the information that we have. Peter even proclaimed no partiality. Peter says, I know that Jews and Gentiles can receive the gospel. No partiality. Quoting Deuteronomy 10, yet he would not be seen sitting with the Gentiles. All because we know he feared the circumcision 
party. This is Peter who also stands up and says, I must answer to God, not to man. Yet here he stands condemned as a hypocrite. And so the first thing I want you to see is sometimes a challenge is appropriate. Now, very closely related, verse 12, is it's a challenge must be warranted. A challenge must be warranted. So it can be appropriate. It's how God uses um, people in his church, but it must be warranted. It must not be something that I just don't like that the person is doing. In other words, it doesn't give us free reign to just go and to pick on whomever we don't agree with and start challenging them in every aspect. How is it that Paul could um, admonish Peter? How is it that Paul could even approach Peter to begin with? Well, first of all, he's an apostle. He's an apostle to an apostle. It doesn't really have a lot of weight for us today. We don't really understand this. Other than to say it's like one CEO that goes to another CEO. They're both working in the same uh, pay grade. And approaching Peter and saying, listen, I think you're wrong here. And let me tell you why. This is in the middle of Paul's apostolic defense that he brings this to light. He's already told us that he has the same apostleship given to him by Jesus Christ as the other apostles operating with the same gospel. Yet he didn't really get training from those other apostles. But yet he sees himself equal to the apostles. And so he's able to go. And we know that it's warranted because it's founded on Scripture. As I said earlier, Matthew 18, he goes to Peter face to face. He had grounds to do so. He had kind of done his homework. I mean, look at the details. Go to verse 12 again. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter was not acting appropriately based off of his theology, based off of the theology given to him by God. That he had this vision and he knew that God showed no partiality. He ate with the Gentiles, which shows you some, at some point he believed that to be true. But then when the Jews, the circumcision party, showed up, he withdrew. Now isn't it interesting, just a little side note here, that Paul gives a name to these individuals, the circumcision party. I don't know where your mind goes automatically, but mine goes to politics. There's some political movement here to move individuals into this party to say you are a part of our group, a part of us because you have been circumcised. Everyone else is outside of the party lines. Folks, we know that that is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not based on party. Should I go to the next level? The kingdom of God is not based on whether you are a Republican or a Democrat. It's not based off of whether you have grown up in the church or you just came into the church or you are a member or you're not a member. None of those things really matter overall. What matters is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer of the gospel, 
then we can nuance those other things later. So Peter, Acts chapter 11, verse 2. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So here's Luke and Paul agreeing as to what kind of is going on in Peter's life. And Peter then, in Acts 2, defends himself against men seeking to obey God, saying God shows no partiality. The Gentiles are included as well. Yet, at the end of the day, Peter would withdraw when that party came around. They had lobbied for Peter to withdraw, and he did. Now, the question in your mind, maybe is like mine, maybe not, but let me put it in your mind, is now which came first? Paul's confrontation that we read about in Galatians or Acts 10, the vision given by God? The answer is, I don't know. The answer is, it really doesn't matter whether Paul is reinforcing God's vision or God's vision is reinforcing Paul's opposition. And there are good arguments both ways. The point is this, Peter knew better than to respond differently than the gospel that he knew to be true, which is that God shows no partiality. And this warranted Paul's admonition, a firm warning, Peter, this is not right. One of the things we need to do in our own life is we need to ask ourselves, are we acting in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ that we know is the good news that we've heard and we believe? Do we believe that there is no partiality when it comes to salvation? And if so, are we acting appropriately? Are we willing to look at our own life in light of the gospel truth? Because I want you to see next that the gospel truth is not just the warrant, but it's also what brings unity to the body of Jesus Christ. A challenge then must seek the unity of the body. Why does Paul even do this? To shame and guilt Peter? To make him feel bad? No. Look at verse 13. To bring unity to the body of Jesus Christ. He says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Huh. Paul's main concern is that People are being led astray from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see that? He didn't even say it's because they're following Peter and he's just wrong or, he, or that they're following the circumcision party or anything like that. No, he says that they're being led astray from an understanding of the gospel, which is that there is no partiality. There's no difference between Jew and Greek. 
in the minds, mind of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Challenge then was seeking to unify the body of Christ, not only to correct Peter's theology and his practice, but so that others weren't led astray. The sin that Paul is laying upon these folks is that they are acting hypocritically. They're saying and they believe one thing, yet they're acting completely different. The world sees that. Paul sees that. The church sees that. And it causes division in the church. We'll see that when we get to the Jerusalem Council later. Isn't this often the charge of the world against the Christian? That they're hypocrites? You've heard it, right? People look at you and say, well, I'm not going to go to church because it's filled with hypocrites. And the answer is yes, it is. We are hypocrites. We do act hypocritically. And it's most often when we're not acting upon the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we make other things more important than Jesus. When we make religion, how we do things, the way we do them, where we worship, how we worship, all of those things, if they become primary over the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we will become hypocrites and we will look like hypocrites. So don't fool yourself and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like Peter and and I believe that Jesus shows no partiality. Let us truly believe the gospel. The gospel that says it has the power to transform even the lowliest sinner into a saint. But don't look at your neighbor. Look at yourself. Say, Lord, there is power in the gospel because I know what I was and I know what I will become. That's what we want the world to see. We want them to see that we are sinners saved by God's grace. Yes, we're hypocrites. And until glorification, until we're standing with Jesus and we're made holy in his presence, we will be hypocrites. So come along with us, folks. Come join us. You'd fit right in. That's the message We need to be very careful of drawing party lines and making division in the church on anything that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are going to challenge, if we are going to admonish one another, and we should, we need to do so appropriately. It must be warranted, but it must seek unity. You know, whenever church discipline is done within the church, the overarching goal is reconciliation. Not so that people are cast out. Not so that people are destroyed. No, it's reconciliation. That's the point. Leaving the 99 and going after the one. And Jesus says, I will use 
the church to admonish. We have the right to confront one another. If there is something that causes disunity and a misapplication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's my last point. A challenge then must be rooted in the gospel. I want everybody to understand this from verse 14. If you're going to admonish, if you're going to challenge, and I've kind of given you the cleared hot to do so, haven't I? I've kind of given you the okay. It is how God works in his kingdom. I must warn you. It has to be rooted in the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He opposed him because he was not in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was not, belie- he was not acting on the fact that a Gentile could be a believer, that a Gentile could be saved. By his separation, he was still drawing attention to the Jew having some different status in the kingdom of God than the Gentile. And that is not the gospel. That is not appropriate. That is not what we know from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How does this play out? in our life, when we are challenged, when we are admonished, when when we are brought uh, uh, some sort of challenge from our brothers and sisters, our pastors, our elders, our deacons, whomever. Sometimes this plays out interpersonally between individuals, but also intrapersonally within our own life. And what I would remind you of is you look at how you respond to challenges, to admonition by our brothers and sisters, is that you would first look at how the gospel should be the most important thing that's, that's in our life. How it should inform you and direct you in your thoughts. What Christ has done for you. How he has saved you. How he has shown you grace and mercy. You see, when you start thinking about the gospel, then you can see how to interact with one another. Well, if God has shown me grace, shouldn't I show them grace? Because Peter doesn't, I mean, Paul doesn't admonish Peter and then take him to court. We should show one another grace in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it informs us how we interact with one another, again, bringing unity to the body. Yet it also shows us how we are to deal with ourselves. When we're faced with the gospel, applied in our own life, we can then start asking questions such as, do I believe that I'm a sinner? 
saved by God's grace? Do I believe that God can redeem that person? Or this person? Or that one over there? Is my identity in Christ Jesus? So it really doesn't matter how I personally feel about the challenge. You see, the gospel is the underpinning for all of these things. How we respond, how we think. We are a sinner saved by God's grace. And a challenge is what God uses to bring that to the forefront, to bring it into our own life so that we must wrestle with it to say, is this truly what I believe? And then how shall I respond to those around me? And what must I do in my own life? Admonitions can be appropriate. They can be warranted. They must seek the unity of the body. They must be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in our own endeavors, our own desires. We must ask ourselves, am I concerned with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul was. That's why he opposed Peter. He wasn't so focused on the action as much as he was that he was acting contrary to the gospel and the damage that was being done to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the important part of this passage. Let me close this way. What if I showed up late to worship today? Piano started. Call to worship. Pastor's still not there. We get to the point where the pastor's supposed to step up and he's out there eating a donut. And then he comes in, donut all over his face, coffee in his hand, and he stands up here and says, you know what, rather than preaching because I, I didn't have time to do anything this week, I tell you what, I, I'm just going to read from my favorite book, my favorite author. Let me tell you what I learned this week from C.S. Lewis. And so I'm going to read you chapter 9 of the Screwtape Letters. And then when we're done, we're going to sing Kumbaya and go have lunch. What would you do? You would ask yourself, what is this man doing? Has he shirked his pastoral responsibility, his preaching duties? Absolutely. And every one of you would admonish me at the back door, and you should, because it would be appropriate. It would be warranted. It would be preacher. You didn't show us the gospel of Jesus Christ. We didn't hear the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And rightly, I would be and should be admonished. There are appropriate ways, times, that God uses admonition in his church. Let us not be a people who shy away thinking, oh, it's conflict. We can't, we can't have that. That's not unity. No, no, no. It's not true. Admonition can build the body because it gives us a reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we centered on the truth of the gospel? That's at the root of admonition. Let us pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we are unworthy. Lord, we pray as we think about your word, and we are challenged by your word, that rather than being a people who run from conflict, that we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we open ourselves up to being taught and admonished and challenged with the love of Christ by our brothers and our sisters. We know, O oh Lord, in that great day as we stand before you, as Peter has warned us, that we are to be holy as you are holy. And we know, O oh Lord, that you use this in your body so that we may be brought to holiness. May it not be so that we stand that day, that glorious day, and you say, depart from me, I never knew you, because we have avoided admonition by your word and by your truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So now let us receive the benediction and let us depart. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.